Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Jenny Benham about her book titled International Law in Europe, 700 to 1200, published by Manchester University Press in 2022. This book investigates a really important question. It's a very straightforward question to say, was there international law in the Middle Ages, but a fascinating one to unpick. So I'm very pleased, Jenny, to welcome you to the podcast. You take us through all things international law in this time period. Thank you. And uh, thank you for having me. I'm very glad to welcome you. Before we get into the intricacies of international law in this period, though, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Yeah, so uh, so my name is obviously Dr. Jenna Benham. Uh, I'm a reader in medieval history at Cardiff University. Uh, I would describe myself as a kind of historian of uh, diplomacy and international law. And it's really that kind of diplomacy background uh, that, that kind of led me to this book on international law. I wrote my first book about peacemaking in the Middle Ages, which is much more based on the kind of how diplomacy worked, kind of rituals, symbols, uh, thinking about um, envoys who were negotiating and so on. on. Uh, And from that, uh, I then kind of thought about, well, Uh, What about all these treaties that uh, I kind of looked at as part of the first book that these envoys and ambassadors were uh, negotiating? I was sort of thinking a little bit more about them and the extent to which um, some of these... treaties and agreements that they were that they were making were that people actually had to adhere to them and how many there were. I mean, I was fa- fascinated by how many there were for starters. Um, and so I decided that probably my next project would be something to do with these treaties. Uh, but I wasn't entirely sure initially of what I was going to do with them uh, because I had been told quite firmly that international law in the period before 1200, simply didn't exist. This this was not something uh, that that I should be investigating. And I've been told that several times. Uh, and so I was a little bit like, oh, okay, right. Well, you know, got the treaties. And, and I was a bit sort of surprised by this kind of very staunch, you know, telling off of that there was no international law because I was thinking to myself that treaties are, of course, sources of international law in the modern period. And I was curious as to why people were thinking or schol- other scholars were thinking that, you know, treaties weren't really international uh, sources of international law in the medieval period. It seemed like there was some sort of discrepancy there. And so I started to think about that uh, a little bit more. But it took me quite a long time to actually figure it out, prim- primarily because people just kept on saying to me, you know, there was no international law and, you know, you must be you must be on the wrong track. And I kept on thinking to myself, gosh, I must be on the wrong track for quite a long time. Um but, uh, but I guess I persevered and uh, I started thinking a little bit more about what the sources of international law is and what, what we think of them as in the modern period. And from that, uh, I quite quickly worked out that actually, if we think about what the sources of international law are, so uh, those are uh, treaties uh, in the main, uh, we got something that we think of as customary practices, that is, uh, things that are done in the same way, uh, uh, you know, uh, lots of times, so we can uh, see practices of them. 
Uh, and then uh, there is what we might think of as uh, legal principles that are the same across lots of different uh, societies and also across time and space. So uh, things to do with canon law, for example, or, or Roman law, natural law, those kinds of things. Uh, and from that, uh, I then started thinking about, well, you know, uh, if treaties are the main source of international law in the modern period, why can it not be so in the medieval period? Uh, and, uh, and that's how it came about that I wrote uh, the book on exactly that, essentially arguing that if we are to think of treaties as source of international law, then we must think of international law as having existed in any period where we find treaties. Mm. I'm so glad that you didn't, you weren't put off by people making this claim um, and that we have this book that, as you said, goes, hang on a second, if we're treating treaties this way now, why can't we look at them then? So that answer obviously gives us some idea of the sort of where and when the book focuses on um, the kind of if everyone says, well, there's nothing before 1200, the obvious place to kind of stop is at 1200 and look before then. You, in the book, go from 700 to 1200 in Europe. How did you choose on 700 as the beginning and what? why focus on Europe? Yeah, so I mean, so, so, so I'll take the, the Europe question uh, uh, first of all. So I don't speak any languages that come from outside Europe. So that's a very, you know, it's a limitation of my own skills effectively. So that's very important to, to be quite clear about that. Uh, I should say also that, uh, of course, in the Middle Ages, you know, most of our documents tend to be in Latin. Uh, some of them come in uh, Old French or Old English or even in one of the, um, what we think of as uh, Old Norse, one of the Scandinavian and even languages. Uh, but essentially, the majority of them uh, go in Latin. Then if we move further east, uh, we get uh, Greek, uh, treaties in Greek uh, or, and treaties in Arabic and then Chinese and so on. And I don't actually speak those languages well enough. So I had to kind of limit myself to the languages that, that I actually can, can speak and work in. Uh, so that's why I chose Europe for starters. Uh, but the period 700 to 1200, well, uh, the starting date of 700 was primarily set because uh, of the availability of the source material, uh, so the availability of treaties. Uh, the 8th century is the first uh, century where we have written treaties surviving from more than one political entities. And I felt that this was very important because uh, we can get uh, one or two isolated in um, uh, treaties from uh, a couple of the earlier centuries, but we don't really get lots of treaties until we from different political entities until we get to the eighth century. So that was a, a, an important kind of marker for me. And then the end date of 1200, well, that was uh, really determined by the fact that it's the kind of midpoint between the compilation of Gratian's uh, Decretum, uh, which dates to the 1130s or thereabouts, and Thomas Aquinas's uh, works uh, Summa Theologia, uh, which is uh, sort of dating to the 1260s or 1270s. And these two works, they are commonly seen as the kind of starting point of the history of international law. That is, they kind of provide some sort of commentary on uh, on international law in many ways. Uh, and so they have been seen as the start of, of international law in the medieval period uh, because they carried the Roman and natural law traditions. And it uh, felt like to me that uh, the natural kind of ending point was then the mid 
midpoint between these two works, uh, primarily because I didn't want to go uh, further into kind of thinking about uh, that area where scholars have traditionally kind of uh, spoken of as the start of international law, but also because I wanted to see if there were any changes uh, after Gratian was kind of writing uh, his decretums and whether there was any changes that was discernible, in particular in the way that the treaties were written in that later 12th century. Uh, so that was the reasons for that kind of this 700 to 1200 cutoff point, which is not to say that I haven't looked at or studied some of the kind of treaties both before that and also in the later period. Uh, I'm, I'm sad to say uh, that I was sad enough to actually do that, <laughs> uh, just, just for fun, as they say, uh, but primarily just because I was interested in seeing were the uh, treaties were fundamentally different uh, outside of the, the two kind of points at which I wanted to make my study. Uh, and one of the things that I very uh, quickly found was the treaties tend to look the same uh, in terms of their format, and they tend to cover roughly the same type of issues across a very long time period. Uh, and that then, again, became a very important kind of motivator to me for writing this particular book, because uh, it says something about the kind of timelessness uh, of uh, treaties as, uh, as doc documents, if we think of them as that way, uh, as kind of as instruments of law, if I can put it that way, uh, and also about the timelessness perhaps of international law, if we are thinking about treaties as sources of international law. And again, that was something that was quite important to me. Yeah, that in fact um, goes very well to, I I'm, I'm not a medievalist, but I write and research treaties. Mine are modern. Mine are from the 1990s. And yet there were a bunch of things that I recognized in the treaties that you are talking about for this time period. Um, so I'm really glad you made that point. And it's very helpful to have you talk through kind of how you choose the geographic, the sort of time and space boundaries um, and to include the pragmatic aspects, right? Like we all can't read everything. And it's important to be clear about that um, when designing our projects. And this is something you mention in the book as well. You talk about taking a, quote, pragmatic approach to finding treaties and the international in this period. As we're on the subject of kind of how you went about this, can you tell us about what you mean by this pragmatic approach? Yeah. So, well, a uh, few, few medieval treaties called themselves that. So there were no kind of neon signs telling me which documents I should uh, investigate or, or include in this study. Uh, I... I I've wished many times that there had been such neon signs, I can tell you. Uh, but uh, we, tend to, we tend to think of treaties as a kind of single document. So when, you know, we tend to refer um, to them often in the singular. But many, maybe even most treaties that I investigated were actually a combination of documents. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you might have uh, the terms uh, in on one particular kind of um, um, uh, or the text of the terms of one particular document. Then there might be a different document that had some sort of uh, statement by the ruler, perhaps a uh, summarizing of the term together with a statement as to why they had decided to make a treaty. Uh, you might have the oaths on a different document or together with the terms or even together with the statement. There might be grants of land or commercial privileges that actually related to the specific terms of the treaty 
or there might be announcement which contain a summary of the terms and so on. So there are lots of kind of components in, in some ways to some of these treaties. And in there are practical reasons for this, of course, uh, because, you know, oaths might involve um, you know, swear, swearing of oath might involve individuals who were not present at a time um, that they that the terms were agreed, uh, and they had to swear to show that they consented and would be able to abide by the terms that had been agreed. And they might then do that, say, a week afterwards, and then that would have been recorded uh, on a on a separate kind of uh, piece of document, as it was. Um, so there are practical reasons why uh, treaties are not always a single document, uh, but uh, in particular, when you are investigating, you know, what survives to us now? You know, if you think about, you know, some of these treaties were made more than a thousand years ago. Uh, and if we then think about that, you know, we can very quickly work out that not all of these various documents might survive. So for many treaties, I might just have the oaths, for example, or for some, I might just have the announcements, which has this summary of the terms, but not the full extent to them. Whereas other treaties might actually have several of these documents survive. And so it became uh, quite important that I understood how treaties were kind of uh, made and what it was that kind of made up a treaty in some ways. And this understanding that actually a treaty is not always just a single document. Sometimes it's compacted into a single document, but very frequently it is not. And this, of course, uh, chimes also with with how it works in the, the modern period, because there are um, of course, no kind of um, uh, no specific treaty document under modern international law either, and I think that that's important for us uh, to to acknowledge. Also, uh, it's something that is not uh, always uh, understood by the general public. Uh, the Vienna Con Convention, for example, sets out that um, the instrument will be a treaty as long as it is intending to be legally binding, uh, so creating uh, rights and duties, and that this can then be objective determined according to the nature and content of the agreement and the circumstances in which this uh, is concluded. Uh, and this actually gives us quite a bit of flexibility. And if I think about this in the uh, context of the medieval world, for instance, there are no physical institutions, of course, in the medieval period. So there, there is no UN, for example. But there certainly were third parties who might be involved, the papacy, other rulers, uh, local officials, and they provided a very similar duty in terms of being able to kind of objectively look at some of these terms and then kind of make decisions, perhaps be involved in the process in some ways. And that is quite a clear indication that which documents are or aren't uh, treaties, for example. So that's one way of kind of going about it. Uh, and it's, it's kind of piecing together together things uh, uh, in lots of different ways in some ways. And, uh, and that, that's what I mean by being practical. Uh, we might also think about that treaties in their very essence uh, is uh, based around the principle of Pacta Sunt Savanda, that is, agreements must be kept. And this principle, of course, binds parties to carry out the terms of an agreement, whatever form that that sworn agreement has been prepared and published. Uh, and that means that, you know, the treaties can look pretty much in any way the parties wanted it to look. And I think that this is also something that, that isn't necessarily understood that well, that we are sort of expecting treaties to have a particular look about them. But actually, if we think about it, even in the modern day, uh, different treaties can look uh, very uh, different. 
I should say also that, of course, not all sworn agrees that agreements are treaties, uh, of course. And this is where it really gets complicated for the medieval period, because there were no states that were kind of recognized by the United Nations, for instance. Uh, and this is one of the factors that we use in uh, uh, to determine whether something is a, a treaty in the modern world, whether it's a kind of done by two or more states that are recognized by the United Nations. Now we know if they make an agreement, now we have a treaty kind of thing. Uh, but in the medieval period, uh, there was this kind of division of power among lots of different individuals, groups, institutions. And it has been one of the reasons why scholars have kind of said that it's very difficult to find the international uh, in the medieval period, because international, of course, means between uh, nations and there are no nation states in the medieval period. Uh, I think it, all of this is a little bit of a, a red herring because the nation, nature of states, of course, uh, is and will continue to be much debated. So I think we just need to move beyond that a little bit uh, and simply be very practical about it and say that the state in the medieval period uh, tends to be rulers or ruling councils. And when we speak of the international in the period, uh, what we really mean is kind of inter-ruler or inter-powers. Uh, and it's uh, quite clear that these are kind of powers or rulers who are not recognizing uh, anyone else as being above them. So these are people who have what we effectively think of in the modern period as sovereignty. Uh, there could, of course, be individuals who had great power within uh, political entities. So on the periphery, for example, of political entities, there tended uh, to be individuals that needed to negotiate and conclude treaties, deal with matters of war uh, or even commerce uh, without involving the ruler themselves. And this is, of course, because distances are very long, communications are quite difficult and so on. Uh, and so the needed to be these individuals actually had significant significant uh, power in order to do it. But what is clear from the documents is that any such treaties that were concluded by these kind of what we might think of as local powerful lords, they are very strictly limited. And they recognize this fact that they are not relating to the whole of a political entity, entity and they don't have the same jurisdiction or authority that was uh, uh, as a treaty that was concluded with the ruler himself. Uh, so it's really important to, to recognize that although it is difficult to kind of see this division of power between different individuals and so on, uh, it is quite clear what is regarded as the kind of the authority in terms of political entities. And it's really those people that we are looking for when we are looking for uh, treaties. Um, and uh, I should say then that all of this means that political entities were polycentric. Uh, authority and jurisdiction sort of operated lots of different uh, levels uh, and clearly involved different actors. I mean, the church, for example, uh, another kind of uh, actor, of course, has what we might think of as a, uh, is a supranational uh, institution with an authority and jurisdiction that kind of complemented uh, that of secular rulers, sometimes also contradicted that of a secular ruler. So there is a kind of, you know, push and pull there uh, continuously. 
But again, treaties as documents, they tend to demonstrate this very clearly in how they are contracted and implemented. So the swearing of oaths by contracting parties, for example, usually the rulers themselves, but also their supporters. And this was, of course, done in order to achieve maximum effect and also to engage different sections of society in keeping uh, the terms. So I think when I when I say that we have to be practical about this, there are a number of different factors that we have to kind of uh, take into consideration. So things uh, like, you know, the idea about Pacta Sunt Savanda, uh, we have to think about uh, how this works in terms of what is the kind of international and what is it that recognizes uh, rulers as being rulers. Uh, and this is where we, we think of as the where the state resides in the medieval period um, and so on. Uh, so, so and, and then, the, you know, I should say also, and then the kind of provenance of the documents themselves uh, were the, um, you know, the types of um, uh, different documents that can actually make up a treaty. So there are a number of different factors that uh, you kind of have to look at uh, and um, sort of balance up in some ways in order to actually get to a corpus of treaties as uh, sources of international law and then to actually think about what it means, uh, what the international means in the medieval period. Mm, no, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking us through that. Um, just listening to it. I think gives us a bunch of things to kind of gives us a framework for the rest of the discussion. And as someone who looks at modern treaties, I'm like, yep, that's the same. Yep, that's the same. Right. OK, this really is a tradition that continues. It's, isn't that interesting? Because, you know, this is the I, I think that this is something that, again, I mean, it's not really widely kind of, you know, if we think about the general public, the the idea seems to be. And even when I speak to some of my, my colleagues who works on different periods, the idea seems to be that actually these are uniquely kind of medieval problems. And when I say to them, no, they're not. This is how it works also in the in the modern period. They look at me as if, oh, you know, that's a bit surprising. But but actually. Actually, it is exactly how it works in the modern period. So I'm quite pleased to hear you confirm this to me. Well, so I'd like to ask about kind of something that definitely turns up in the modern period and kind of ask you to tell us about how it looks in this period, which is, of course, that not treaties can list all sorts of things, right? You've got these rights, you've got these obligations, this is the treaty term that needs to be held. But as you've hinted at in your answer just now, and as we know from modern treaties, there's a difference between writing something in a treaty and actually having an enforcement for it versus writing it in a treaty and kind of hoping it happens or knowing that, you know, you might use it for some things, but enforcement is maybe a bit shakier. To what extent did treaties in this time period, were they listing things that were expected to be enforced? Were they listing some things that were expected to be enforced? How do we take this thing we see now? What did it look like then? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question because uh, m most of the discussion about the international law is nearly always about enforcement. Can we enforce something? Can we make sure that something happens? And then I think to myself, but, you know, if we think about the modern period, it's not actually that easy to enforce international law uh, or any treaties, even in the modern period. I mean, we can look at what's happening in the world at the moment. And from that, we can work out very quickly uh, that, you know, it's it's not that easy to, to actually enforce uh, international law as, as one might, might think, even if you have a kind of very big corpus of uh, material to, to work from. Uh, and so I, I tend to think about compliance uh, a lot. Uh, effective 
effectively that people buy into uh, wanting to take part. Uh, and there are lots of reasons why people would want to do it. Some of them are very practical. So, you know, about economic prosperity, for example. So if you're, you know, concluding a commercial treaty, the reason why you want to continue to kind of be involved in it and you have these terms and you want to keep those terms is, of course, because the idea initially has been that it will bring you economic prosperity. Uh, so that's a kind of powerful incentive to kind of uh, m make sure that people are, are adhering to things. Um, and there are, there are, you know, lots of other ways in which we can think about that. Alliances, for example. Um, alliance building is a, is a big thing in the world today and alliance building is also the main form of deterrence in the medieval period and again people are kind of entering into these alliances with uh, setting out obligations um, about being friends in very particular uh, ways so for example coming to the aid of each other in case they are attacked by uh, a third party this is something that of course exists also in the NATO treaty for instance so um, uh, and so people are, are feeling that they are wanting to adhere to this and there are very clear rationales why, why they want to do it. Are they enforceable? Well, uh, I think this is a, a very tricky one. There are certain aspects that are very clearly enforceable. Uh, so things to do with uh, commercial things, for example, if someone doesn't adhere to treaties, the way that you, in which you can enforce that is, of course, by removing privileges. So, for example, if you have uh, agreed a treaty and it says that you should have free trade uh, and then all of a sudden one of you uh, does something that, um, you know, um, this size to kind of impose toll, for example, on particular goods, then now there is a kind of breach uh, of that agreement. And so you can then uh, effectively retaliate. Uh, that's one way. So you can put in the same kind of tolls uh, on goods that are imported towards you. Uh, your, or you can remove other privileges or you can do... Uh, other responses. You can get a third party to get involved. You can negotiate with the party initially. So in some ways, it's not about enforcement in terms of us thinking about force necessarily. It's about enforcing in other way, about thinking around how you can resolve when there have been breaches. And I think that very frequently people don't think about enforcement in that way, but it's the way in which enforcement usually works. So those times when we try to enforce um, um, kind of treaties and compliance with something by force, those times are actually in the minority. Uh, and it can be quite far down the down the line of breaches uh, that we try to enforce things by force. And it, it was exactly the same in the medieval period. Of course, they they can enforce things by, you know, uh, invading, by doing military action, for example. But but that's not the, the first kind of tool that they reach for. The first tools that they reach for is negotiation, removing uh, um, kind of uh, privileges, for example, uh, making sure that they perhaps internationally shaming them. That, that means that they're calling out someone's behavior and they're trying to, uh, to get others to adhere to their kind of version of events. I mean, this, this is a, a, effectively what we see in the in the modern period. This is exactly how international law works also in the modern period. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Um, so thank you for helping us understand just kind of how clear the continuity is on this point. Um, 
speaking of the kind of practical side, not just the sort of in people's imaginations necessarily, but how this works really on the ground on a daily basis basis. You mentioned in the book that looking at displacement is one of the best ways to see how this international law operates on a day-to-day basis. Why is displacement kind of one of the best ways to see this? I think there is a very simple answer to this, and that is that uh, the evidence, uh, not only in treaties, but also all other evidence that is available, is so strong that uh, it it is the, the thing that is, you know, absolutely the main concern of political entities at the time. Uh, and in particular, the I mean, the displacement can come in lots of different forms. You can think of it as kind of, uh, you know, refugees in terms of kind of movements of, of bigger groups of people. But the example that I took in the book was to do with uh, exile and primarily uh, what we might think of as political exile uh, in, in the, the modern period. And uh, exile is one of those kind of moments where, you know, someone has, has perhaps done something bad uh, and uh, you get ousted, you get uh, shoved out of the political entity uh, to, to make your own way in the world as it is. And very frequently, I mean, it can happen when um, there is a rebellion, for example, so a challenger to the authority, so, uh, or when there is a creation of a new kingdom, for instance. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that we also see, of course, uh, in the modern periods, if you're thinking about uh, how new states are created or, or you know, uh, if someone takes over power and they o- oust uh, the, the incumbent leader, for example, they might then go into exile and so on. Um, and those individuals that have gone into exile, they are effectively a threat. They can be a threat to the original kind of political entity from where they have come uh, in the way that they might go out and uh, the person who has been exiled, he might have uh, a group of other individuals with him and they can cause quite a bit of uh, damage because they now are shorn of all the kind of social and economic resources. And so they go off raiding, plundering, you know, making their way uh, across this medieval world uh, in any way that they can. They might take up employment with some other ruler, often by kind of continuing warfare in, in lots of different ways. They might even get support from uh, another political entity and another ruler and then try to make their way back from where they have come. And then they become uh, a threat again to that person. So they are a threat uh, in lots of different ways. And one of the things that we can see if we look at other evidence is that we can see things like um, how these people are being dealt with initially. So the legal process that is involved in kind of ousting them and exiling them in the first place. Uh, We can uh, get reports about where they go and what they do when they go there frequently, kind of plundering, raiding, those kinds of things. But there, there are lots of other people who do more peaceful things, you know, residing in in um, courts, uh, frequently in in some style, actually, I will say. Um, uh, And then there are, um, there is evidence also that shows uh, that rulers were effectively um, discussing and communicating about these uh, individuals that have, or groups of people that have been exiled. And the reason for that is because they are a threat 
they can be a threat in lots of different ways. Uh, in the same way that if we think about migration uh, in the modern world, uh, this is something that is very complex and, uh, you know, can be seen as very threatening in lots of different ways. You know, what do you do if you all of a sudden have, you know, a leader come in and he might have, I don't know, 100 followers, for example. You know, what, what are you going to do with him, you know? you know, are you going to offer him somewhere to stay with his family? What do you do with the people that are already then living on that land, perhaps? You know, so so it's it's a tricky issue to resolve for all parties involved. And it's something that everyone wants to kind of do something about. And the reason then why there is so much evidence for it at lots of different levels. So from the treaties that are kind of saying, I'm not going to you know, I'm not going to shelter any of these exiles. If I find any of them in my kingdom, I'm going to, you know, send them back to you. Um, So treaties very frequently have such clauses. But then there is other evidence, whether it's laws or whether it's legal record, court records very frequently, that shows exactly uh, what these people kind of, what happened in terms of the legal process that made them be exiles. And then there is plenty of evidence that then shows about negotiations, whether it's for their return or for them to continue to be exiles. And then evidence that shows that, you know, sometimes they have made their way back. Sometimes they have even ousted uh, the ruler uh, who exiled them in the first place and so on and so forth. So there, there is just the, the sheer volume of evidence just shows that this is the kind of the key issues that everyone at the time is trying to resolve. Uh, and that's why it's one of the best ways of seeing that international law was kind of practiced on a, on a regular basis in this period. Mm, no, absolutely. An incredibly convincing um, answer to the question. Staying on the kind of practical problems people are trying to solve, of course, uh, although displacement might be the best way to see it, the perhaps most famous problem is, of course, war and peace. What does looking at what treaties say about redress and amnesty tell us about the day-to-day, the practical realities of war and peace in this period? Yeah, this I, this is one that I am supremely interested in because this really goes to the kind of nitty gritty uh, about treaties and uh, thinking about what they do and the extent to which treaties, you know, do they actually resolve things just at that very highest level, you know, the, the level between political entities or between rulers as it is, uh, or do they actually resolve issues at the lower levels, you know, with the communities that are that perhaps have been affected by by warfare or that have been affected by, I don't know, a cessation in trade, for example. Uh, And redress is is a really important issue when it comes to that, because it's the thing that the communities care about and that individuals care about. For example, uh, if you have uh, as part of conflict or uh, maybe you were trading in a different country and you lost all of your, your goods because you were attacked, for example, Uh, And you're going to want them back because that's a big chunk of your income, perhaps. Uh, You might not be able to make a living unless you have that. And you need to then be able to go somewhere to ask to actually have that either restored to you or 
to kind of be recompensed for what you have lost. And so that's a very important principle. And it's one that we can see again and again. So we can see um, embassies, for example, going from different communities as well as from uh, individuals, as well as from the rulers themselves, going to uh, into foreign countries and, uh, and saying, you know, uh, some of our in our subjects were um, were injured or they lost goods or they lost property, and we would now like to either have it restored or to have or to get some compensation in return for the loss that we have suffered and so we know that this is something that that happens uh, continuously it's uh, it's an interesting one because uh, frequently the middle ages is seen as the kind of you know um, a time when they do nothing but war uh, and there is just conflict uh, all the time and uh, you know the way that they resolve things if someone takes something the way they resolve it is by hitting that person uh, on the head and uh, effectively kind of uh, taking the goods back. But actually, uh, it shows that the treatise shows and the, the material, the kind of complementary treatise shows that this is not at all what happens. What really happens is that normal relations are peaceful uh, and people tend to ask for redress, first of all, because that's the thing that will make a real difference to a community and to individuals. You know, you can... Uh, you can, of course, go to war and, and that might be successful or it might not. But I think we should always keep in mind also that going to war or enforcing things uh, by force is not always the cheapest option. And I don't mean because it costs money to kind of do the whole logistics of uh, military things necessarily, because some of that can actually be quite cheap in the Middle Ages. Uh, but really, what, what I mean by that is that actually, if you go to war, that can then uh, increase the the kind of sense of that you have been wronged, that um, you need more justice. Because m now, not only have you lost your goods, but now you're losing people also. It can come with inherent risk. People might attack your community, your village, uh, your city. And so, so there is, is a lot of risk in kind of trying to enforce things by force. Whereas if we look at redress, we can really see how things were done on a day-to-day -day basis, how they were trying to resolve very simple things. Uh, and it can be anything from, say, for example, um, you know, uh, I I want to trade uh, in a different uh, city from my own that's across the border, uh, and uh, I go there. I lose, uh, or I go there. I sell all my goods, and then uh, someone wants to buy more, and I'm I say, yeah, of course, uh, I I will get some more. And now, if I don't come back. Uh, it says in the treaty that you can come and take a pledge if I don't return with these goods. Uh, and so that is a very kind of um, um, quick way of ensuring that the people are kind of resolving the things that can come up day to day effectively. Uh, and it shows a very important way in which um, what was happening on the ground. And that's, that's, an important, um, that's an important thing for me, I think, because often when we think about treaties, we think of it as something that, that don't really affect us uh, individually and that don't affect us in our communities that we are living, something that kind of happens in, you know, between major powers, you know, at the very highest levels and have no impact on the local level. But actually, all of these things have an impact on the local level. And I think redress is a really 
um, effective way of seeing that. And I just, uh, just on the, because you asked about um, kind of war and peace, um, uh -huh. and I just want to kind of say on that issue, I think one of the things that uh, is really interesting uh, to me is that uh, if we think about war and peace, we often think of uh, kind of peace as something that is, you know, um, affects uh, say if you if you think uh, if you think that you have peace in in your country, you think of it as having peace everywhere in that country. But actually, what what we know from how treaties work is that actually there might be isolation of a conflict zone, for example, or you might have peace for very re particular regions, for instance. Uh, whereas in other parts. Um, the kind of conflict is continuing. Uh, and it's important in the medieval period where logistics and communications uh, are much more difficult than they are today to be flexible in that way because it's the only way of uh, really trying to resolve some of these kind of uh, things that matters to community. And if uh, I should say also that if you don't resolve some of these things for the community, what will effectively happen uh, if you're the king is that those communities won't support you to continue your war or to continue your peace treaty or whatever it might be and then you are you are short of followers uh, and that is of course a very serious thing for a ruler to be if you uh -huh. don't have any followers you're not really a ruler of anything at all so it's uh -huh. important to try and keep your people happy and to kind of try and um, uh, try and do the things uh, that actually will will matter to people and I think some of that um, kind of flies a little bit in uh, in the face of what, how people uh, perceive uh, not only medieval rulers but also the Middle Ages as a whole where uh, people think that these people are motivated only by their own kind of um, greed perhaps by dynastic concerns and so on and so forth but actually treaties show that this is not the case that they, there are lots of things that go into thinking about how medieval political entities work uh, uh, and what it is that are kind of motivating uh, rulers uh, mm -hmm. that are that are governing these particular entities well, and it also helps us understand more about the everyday realities, um, given that with anything medieval, we always have a question of, well, what can we actually find out from the sources? What is it possible to know? You're talking about how treaties can actually tell us something about day-to-day -day life, which is maybe not a place we'd expect to find that information. So really helpful to understand on a lot of different levels. Um, turning, however, to a different section of the book, Again, drawing a parallel between the modern and the medieval, today we're pretty used to uh, political leaders especially making justifications about why they haven't done something or why they've stopped doing something or why that rule really doesn't apply to them. And uh, beyond the kind of surface of the specifics of what they're saying, we can often understand a lot about kind of what they do and don't prioritize by like, when do they apologize? When do they try and justify their behavior and make it sound okay? There's a lot we can kind of learn from that. And this very much rings true in your book in the medieval period as well. What can we learn by how people try and justify breaking a treaty? 
Do you know, this was, I think this is one of the things that actually surprised me the most uh, about doing the research. Uh, also, this kind of idea about uh, justification was, was something, it was a notion that came to me quite late in, in terms of the research for the book and in terms of writing it. Uh, and I was surprised by it because initially I was kind of thinking to myself, oh, I don't don't really know what I was going to find. Uh, I was thinking that justification tends to, or how it's been described by, by scholars prior to this point, was really about um, thinking about um, the just war, for example. So justifications for kind of, uh, for going to war or perhaps, uh, you know, uh, not very much thinking about what was happening in war, so justification for what, what's going on in conflict as such, so rights in war as opposed to rights to war. Um, but actually, when I looked at justification, I, w I was really surprised because um, it, it made some of these leaders not sound very different to some of the leaders we have currently, for starters. So using very much of the same uh, kind of justifications. Uh, and the big one is, of course, enemy of mankind. Uh, so this is a very kind of... Um, you know, it, when it's described in the literature, um, uh, scholars very frequently talk about enemy of mankind being uh, pirates and so on. But actually, in the medieval period, this was a, a, a was a much broader concept that included uh, people that had committed what we now think of as crimes against humanity. So effectively, those that are affected by international criminal law. Um, and it can be anything from those that sort of enslave or um, captive, uh, take uh, groups of people captive, those who are plundering or those who are attacking um, institution or uh, that should be kind of sacred during times of war. So so like the church, for example, uh, or those uh, groups of people that uh, should have sanctity because they're non-combatant, so merchants, merchants, pilgrims, and, and so on. And, um, and those kind of justifications are really the same as they are today. So if you uh, want to justify that someone has been really horrible and they're kind of breaching the law, as we're seeing currently, uh, you basically say that the other side is doing all of those things. And that justifies why we are taking action. And it was exactly the same in the medieval period. So they would say, I'm going to do, I, I, uh, I, the reason why we're going to war is because it's self-defense, because uh, this other side has effectively committed crimes against Against humanity. So it's a very important principle, and I didn't think that I was going to find it in the me medieval period, really. Um, and then there are some of the other things. So things to do with commerce, for example, things to do with force majeure very often. So uh, particular natural events, for instance, that might have prevented them from uh, carrying out a particular obligation. So they might say things like, uh, oh, well, the reason why I couldn't keep to, to the treaty that we concluded uh, previously was because I was attacked by pirates and that prevented me from coming to your aid uh, for the alliance that we had concluded previously and I just wasn't able to do it. 
But now, uh, you know, having suffered that uh, that horrible event of being attacked by pri- uh, by um, um, pirates, uh, I'm now ready to kind of, you know, to be your ally again. And this time, nothing is going to stop me from from being part of this alliance. So, so we see that very frequently. Uh, and of course, uh, in commerce, it works the the same way. So, natural events, whether it's kind of storms uh, or um, uh, natural disasters uh, such as earthquakes uh, and so on. Um, and I, I think that I was surprised by the range of things uh, that people could justify action with in lots of ways. Um, and in particular, I was surprised by, I felt they were quite politically quite savvy, much savvier than I thought they were going to be, which sounds really awful as someone who is a medievalist and kind of, you know, uh, work on this period. Uh, but I, I, I think that I had kind of in some ways bought into this idea that somehow political leaders in the medieval period were not quite as sophisticated as uh, as we like to think that we are in the modern period. And actually what I discovered was that they are at least as sophisticated as we are, if not more, because they have lots of, lots of barriers in terms of kind of this logistics and communications and so on, uh, whereas we have, have a lot more, more technological help nowadays. Uh, and that, me- that basically meant that they have, had to be pretty Survey uh, and had to kind of come up with uh, very clear reasoning as to why they were doing things. Um, and I think that also we often think that that they would simply, you know, they didn't care about what other people thought about them. So, for example, you know, um, did the king of England, did he care about what the, the king of Germany might think, For king of the Germans, for example, might think uh, about him attacking the French uh, lands? Um, and often we kind of think to ourselves, no, he, he wouldn't have been bothered at all. But actually, justification shows very clearly that having an international reputation is very, very important. It is something that can really scupper your ability to rule, uh, and in particular, that kind of ability to uh, be able to get um, uh, allies. It's a very important uh, thing to be able to do in the medieval period. I think, as I said earlier, uh, one of the main kind of deterrents uh, in the medieval period is uh, alliance building. And if you are seen as someone that is not trustworthy, as someone that would just do things kind of, um, you know, at the spur of the moment without considering things, uh, then you get a reputation for, for being untrustworthy or not being someone that can fulfill your obligations. And that is a reputation that no one wants. Uh, and so justifications are very important in order to be able to navigate that, in order to be able to still kind of conclude alliances with, with other rulers and so on. Uh, mm. Because if you don't do that, you become isolated. And mm-hmm. um, isolated rulers uh, tend not to survive very long. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um I think it is interesting to kind of think about what do we mean by sophistication? How does that turn up um, in comparing these examples? I don't want to ignore the fact, however, that um, international law, whether then or now, is not just about the documents. It's not just about the body of texts um, that can be drawn on. It's also, there's some key processes involved. Um, We generally sort of group them into arbitration and mediation. Uh, They obviously have some amount of overlap, but kind of using those terms, what did those processes and practices look like in this medieval period? 
Yeah, it's um, it's very interesting. Uh, I think they didn't look that dissimilar to what we have now. I think the the key uh, differences tend to be in terms of how we view objectivities. So, uh, so if I think about uh, mediation uh, for starters, so this is uh, the kind of the most common uh, way in which a third party might be involved. Uh, a mediation could range from anything from um, say uh, the the subjects of of a ruler uh, might be involved in kind of negotiating uh, the treaties or in trying to bring two rulers uh, to conclude a, a treaty. Uh, for instance, uh, communities that are bordering each other, uh, they they might be quite well placed actually to say, actually we we don't want any more conflict now. Uh, because while while you two are kind of arguing and you're sending troops and doing lots of things, actually our communities are suffering and there's no commerce and you know many of our people have married each other and so on and so forth. And actually we, we want to have those daily interactions uh, still working well. And so those communities might then uh, decide to kind of send their lord, for example, uh, or their lords uh, to to act as mediators in order to bring the parties to the table as it is. It's a way you're kind of putting pressure on the on the people that matter in order to come to terms. Uh, so, so mediation can be a very effective way uh, of doing it. It's also uh, what we might think of as a as a kind of ground up uh, way of um, of getting to resolution of conflict. Uh, it can also, of course, work uh, as a top-down process. So uh, you might have a, a completely, not necessarily neutral third party, but someone that comes in. So say, for example, if um, uh, one of the uh, uh, Iberian kings uh, is uh, has a conflict with the king of France, for example. Uh, they might have someone from uh, from a different political entity that comes and mediates uh, between them. Uh, so, so that that can be a way of working. The one thing that I will say is that very often these people are not objective in the way that we we kind of or neutral, shall I say, in the way we think of in the modern period. So frequently, actually, works best. In if they are none of those things. So we don't, they don't want them to be objective and they don't want them to be neutral. What they really want is that they have some sort of stake in the whole process in some way. So it works best when, um, when the third party has connection, likely with both parties, because that's a way of then putting pressure on them, whether that pressure is kind of uh, dynastically, because they might have... Um, uh, kind of marriage alliances uh, with one of the one of the rulers, or it might be for commercial reason, or it might be because the allies in different way, and maybe they are planning on kind of you know doing some sort of military operation at the at the different party yet again, and so on. So there, there there can be lots of reasons why these people have contacts with each other, and it's really those kind of links that are extremely important uh, in terms of getting people to to put pressure uh, on uh, on the parties to come to terms. So they, they don't want anyone that's kind of objective or neutral uh, uh, in many cases. They, they really want the people that have connections. So that, that's quite a, um, not necessarily a different one to how it works in the modern period, but it's, uh, it's definitely in the modern period that tends to be a focus on uh, kind of neutral parties, even if that is not necessarily the case uh, uh, in practice very frequently. 
Um, if we think about arbitration, there are um, sort of different ways of, of doing arbitration in the medieval period, and there are uh, a, a number of different aspects to it. Uh, I think arbitration is very different to mediation in that arbitration um, is when the two parties themselves actually asks a third party to make a judgment for them. So often arbitration tends to come when the two sides uh, have probably tried mediation already and it hasn't worked and, you know, nothing is really uh, making them come to terms. They can't really agree very easily. Um, and perhaps the warfare has become uh, a little bit entrenched or maybe it's uh, what we think of as civil war. Um, so uh, those are the kind of circumstances that we tend to get arbitration. Uh, it's uh, often a kind of solution that people don't necessarily uh, take very easily. And uh, arbitration is perhaps often also about smaller issues. So say, for example, that you, want, you have um, had a conflict and you've agreed on pretty much everything apart from one small thing, then one way of doing it is to basically isolate that one thing and to be very specific in the treaty that this particular issue, uh, say, uh, um, um, uh, a particular piece of land that both uh, entities are disputing, then you can put that particular issue to arbitration and someone will make a judgment uh, about that. Uh, and that then means that the rest of, uh, of what you're doing uh, is uh, effectively kind of still, uh, still agreed within the, the terms of the treaties. Uh, and so arbitration then works in that... Um, a third party is asked to make a judgment uh, about a particular issue. Uh, and the fact that uh, the two parties are then agreeing to adhere to that, that is the point that sort of makes it in some ways a little bit tricky and a little bit dangerous uh, for rulers. Uh, because if you're, if you're saying that you're uh, going to adhere to something and then it doesn't quite go in your favor, ah, that gets a bit tricky. Uh, so, so that obviously can, it can be something that then kind of ends up with more conflict, which is not what they want uh, in a sense. Uh, but um, arbitration can also be uh, a useful way of isolating particular issues that can't be resolved. And I should say there are uh, different types of arbitration. So often when there are uh, very specific issues, smaller issues that can't be resolved, they tend to resolve that by doing arbitration out in the communities. So um, if there is a particular land dispute, for example, then what they do is they uh, get an arbitration panel that, it, that consists of an equal number of, of uh, men from uh, both sides. And it's then those men who will then kind of decide uh, what, uh, how they will resolve that particular uh, disputed issue in that in that area, and so it's a kind of, uh, as I said again, it's a it's a bottom up process. There, arbitration when it's a top down measure uh, very frequently involves the papacy. And the Pope, of course, is seen as having some kind of universal authority and jurisdiction over all Christians. Uh, but it means that uh, the Pope uh, sort of ends up dealing with issues that rulers don't necessarily want him to deal with. Uh, the Pope has very real enforcement methods in terms of excommunication, 
So the, the Pope might excommunicate the ruler, for example, and that means that he can no longer rule. So that's a very very difficult issue, obviously. Uh, or he might place uh, a kingdom under interdict, for example, which means that no, serv- no church services or anything can be uh, done during uh, the period of the interdict. And again, those are things so, you know, people can't marry, you can't be baptized, you know, you can't receive the last rites and so on. Uh, and those things affect communities and people very uh, uh, very quickly becomes fed up uh, with living under those conditions. And um, and so that can be very dangerous for a ruler because it can lose him a lot of followers and a lot of supporters. Uh, and so really arbitration by the papacy is something that rulers, I, I, I would describe it, I describe it as the nuclear option, really, uh, because uh, because it is a dangerous point uh, for a ruler uh, to to or a dangerous thing for a ruler to do effectively because of those very real kind of enforcement methods that that the papacy has. The papacy is a fascinating aspect to me as a legal actor, um, thinking about how they interact with these other issues, um, because of course that's there isn't really a direct comparison today, though. I think there's interesting arguments that could be made about kind of the role of international organizations, but I won't make you go down that rabbit hole. Um, However, we have throughout this kind of been creating analogies, been drawing similarities between the medieval period and the modern one. We've been doing that sort of throughout as we've gone. But if you think about the book as a whole, are there any sort of top analogies or similarities that you think really jump out at you the most? Yeah, there there are a few things, and primarily they're actually really concerned with the things that I'm personally most interested in. So, uh, so I hope. <laughs> I that, mean, fair enough. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> so, so I hope the people would bear with me, bear with me on that. Um, so, I mean, I think the thing uh, that I was surprised by was this kind of idea about international criminal uh, law, uh, because one of the things. So, so when I first started uh, writing the book, I had just uh, read. Um, Gosh, is it uh, Philip Sands' uh, East-West Street, I think it's called? Um, which is about the kind of, you know, how international criminal law kind of started kind of in the wake of the Second World War with the Nuremberg trial and this kind of idea about whether um, it was going to be about crimes against humanity, uh, which is the the thing that kind of underpins what we now think of as international criminal law uh, as set out in the Rome statute, or whether it was kind of go down this other route of kind of genocide uh, and so on. And so I, I had just read that at the point that I was kind of really starting to seriously uh, write um, uh, my own book. And so when I was looking at this, I became fascinated by the fact that many of the issues that are concerning kind of international criminal law, many of the same crimes, many of the issues in terms of justifications, for example, uh, many of the ways in which you are dealing with with it, so kind of enforcement of it, whether it's kind of trying to prosecute individuals. So, uh, you know, these are uh, often individuals who have been kind of either exiled or they are 
dealt with in some ways because they've done horrendous uh, things. Uh, and that, that was of great interest to me. It's not exactly how we think of as human rights uh, in the, the modern period, uh, quite clearly. But uh, there is a sense of that there are certain things that you should simply not do. Uh, and I think I was, I was quite surprised by that. And I was quite surprised by how widespread that notion was. Because prior to me looking at the treaties, I had uh, mainly come across it in kind of ecclesiastical uh, texts. Uh, and, but what I saw when I was looking at the treaties uh, and the kind of complementary material to do with that was that actually this idea about there being, you know, prosecuting criminals in particular, those who have committed the most heinous crimes, that, that this is much more widespread. And there is a real sense that these are the people that, that kind of need to be dealt with in some uh, ways. So, so that, is, that is a kind of uh, enduring interest in, the, uh, in this that I have that, that exists also in the modern period, because those are the same issues that we, of course, grapple with uh, in modern international uh, law also. Uh, and in fact, it's one of the things that I will continue to work on uh, as I go forward. Um, but I can think of other issues. So the arbitration one, I think, is an interesting one because there are some clear similarities in how both arbitration and mediation works, but there are also some differences. And I guess one of the things that I'm really interested in, when, when do those differences turn up? And, and no one knows at the moment. We don't, we don't quite know when those differences turn up because uh, there hasn't been anyone that's kind of really done the, the kind of work that I've done in terms of looking at all of the treaties uh, for the later medieval period and also as we go into the early modern period. Uh, and that's really what's needed. I know that will be a mammoth task, right? No person on, on their own could do that kind of work. There's just too many treaties. Uh, but it's really what would be needed in order to kind of establish uh, some of those, um, you know, to, to be able to give us some of those answers about when do things change, for example. Um, uh, I'm also interested in things like, I mean, force majeure is a, is a very interesting uh, one to me and thinking about these kind of justifications uh, in particular to do with um, uh, kind of natural disasters because those are the things that uh, are affecting people regardless of, uh, you know, time period. So natural disasters remain the same. Uh, and so I'm interested in kind of responses to them. And it seems that, uh, seems that in terms of treaties, we can have some of the similar uh, responses to it. So that's, that's quite an interesting uh, one to me. Uh, but then if I think more broadly, so beyond kind of uh, the things that that I'm interested in continue to investigate, uh, I would say some of the top analogies is um, people have pretty much the same challenges uh, in the medieval period as we do today. Uh, I've spoken about some of them already, so to do with um, sort of displacement of people, uh, to deal with those uh, states or individuals that are committing crimes that are absolutely heinous, whether it's in conflict or kind of outside of conflict. Um, uh, and so those those are kind of uh, pretty much the same, same challenges. And then thinking more broadly about things like uh, commerce, how can we have peaceful relations? How can we do peaceful uh, commerce, for example, how can we uh, get prosperity? Uh, and those are, again, uh, 
uh, similar regardless of time periods. And the responses to, to all of these tend to be fairly similar too. Uh, and all within this kind of uh, legal framework that we think of as, as international law. Uh, and so I, I think that that in itself is actually the top analogy, you know, because I, I sort of feel like it doesn't look that, it, you know, international law doesn't look that different today to what it did in the medieval period. You know, if, uh, you know, if we take away the kind of idea about the United Nations, uh, then what we are left with is uh, is pretty similar in in many ways, and I think that's uh, that's a quite an interesting uh, one to me. All of those are interesting. Um, as my final question, though, I'd love to pick up on something you just briefly mentioned. What might you be working on now or next? Yeah, so uh, so kind of uh, uh, said um, already about the international criminal law. I think it lives uh, sort of uh, resides a little bit in the future for me. I uh, particularly want to look at uh, transitional justice and the connection to uh, international criminal law and criminal uh, crimes against humanities in particular. Um, and uh, I really want to have uh, a good chance to kind of uh, do some more work on transitional justice and what this might mean in the medieval period. Um, there is uh, great debates amongst um, uh, scholars kind of talking about it as something that happens in the wake of the um, Second World War, uh, or some people uh, talk about it as happening in the wake of uh, uh, Latin American kind of um, civil wars or some of the uh, uh, wars that, that came out of the, the former Yugoslav republics. Um, whereas someone like myself can see that actually many of the principles and many of the uh, responses are, of transitional justice uh, are also uh, features uh, in the medieval period and is something that I, I would like to investigate going forward. Uh, at the moment, however, I'm working on something completely different. Uh, well, not completely different. I don't know why I'm saying that. Uh, I'm actually working on a book on spies and espionage. Uh, and I guess, yes, I mean, it's, it's great fun, right? Um, but uh, I think the thing that's uh, kind of come out of that is that I started thinking about it primarily because uh, many of the treaties kind of mention spies uh, or have provisions about sharing of information or intelligence in some way or another, uh, or about how to deal with uh, spies and espionage. Uh, and again, spies is one of these people uh, that are, of course, uh, committing what they in the Middle Ages think of as crimes against humanity, uh, incidentally. So this is kind of the, the linkage uh, to some of the things that I'm interested in. Uh, but but I'm, uh, I'm interested in kind of spice and espionage from, from that point of view, and in particular, the kind of uh, the very legal context uh, in which it operates or not uh, thinking about, you know, what is it that is right or wrong in both war and peace. Uh, and it's uh, really that that I'm investigating at the moment. Uh, and I should should say one of the most fascinating things that has come out of the work that I've done already is uh, how espionage is uh, kind of exists in metaphorical little birds. So these are birds such as jackdaws, starlings, um, sparrows, parrots sometimes, who are um, effectively seen as spies. And they tend to be household servants very frequently. Uh, 
who are kind of little birds in the background. Uh, and this uh, can be seen very frequently in uh, Latin medieval literature or uh, even uh, uh, Old High German or uh, even Old Norse uh, literature. And I think this is uh, absolutely fascinating uh, and kind of takes me into, you know, Game of Thrones uh, scenarios, of course. Uh, yeah, so so it's interesting, but there is a kind of, um, there is a legal aspect to it, which is, of course, my, my true in interest uh, in all of this. Brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing um, those future current projects with us. Of course, listeners can read the book we've primarily been discussing, um, quite straightforwardly titled International Law in Europe, 700 to 1200, published by Manchester University Press in 2022. Jenny, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you. It's been, it's been fun.